Hello, dearest patrons. We're back with the third reading club of the 2022 series. Uh, it's the first one on fear. Uh, I have to apologize, first of all, for us being delayed on this and delayed in putting it out. Um, we're delayed for a number of reasons, including I think George tried to join the Dissolve Battalion. We had to dissuade him. That took up a lot of time. Um, so anyway. We had um, to explain to him it wasn't just red brown; it was actually worse. It, it was just brown. brown. It was, it was yeah, just brown. Black yeah, brown. brown. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Exactly. Thanks. Thanks for saving me from embarrassing myself on on social media <laughs> by posting all the photos when I went over there. Yeah. Um, so anyway, yes, we're sorry, um, but from now on, these recordings will always be more or less at the last Wednesday of the month. So the next recording uh, is going to be in two weeks time, um, or, you know, two weeks from the time that you're hearing this. So it's, it'll be pretty soon. And it'll be following up on the same topic, more or less, it'll be about fear, it'll be a different book on fear, which uh, we'll talk about just very briefly at the very end. Before we get started, uh, I contacted all the people who wanted to set up a local reading club, got some feedback. Um, so just to update you where we are on that, because we've got a couple of reading groups around the world and mainly North America and Europe, which have started up, they've got plenty of members and they're doing very well. Um, so, you know, Portland, Seattle, um, Dublin, London, all have a healthy group and are meeting regularly. There's a couple of others who have good numbers, but I think haven't met yet. Um, maybe they're having some trouble coordinating. If you need any help with that, please do email us at info at bungacast.com. That's uh, Berlin, Stockholm, Yorkshire, um, Toronto, New York, and Chicago. New York, there's a bunch of you, but I'm not sure if you've managed to meet yet. Um, so anyway, if you do need help any coordinating with that, um, get in touch, and I'll also be in touch um, over the course of the next couple of days to, to see if uh, we can't help kind of bring all of you together. But there's a bunch of other cities where there's people who are interested, but there's just not enough of you, or there's maybe only one of you. Um, and they are in North America, Los Angeles, New England, Philadelphia, San Francisco, Bay Area, Vancouver, Winnipeg, and Washington, D.C. So if you're a listener and you're in one of those areas or nearby and you'd like to meet up with fellow listeners to follow along the reading club, um, please get in touch. Get in touch uh, either via Patreon or at info at bungacast.com. Um, and then in Europe, Amsterdam, Groningen, Leipzig, Milan, Munich, Tallinn, uh, and Glasgow or Edinburgh. Um, so there, those ones have only one or two people who are interested, haven't managed to meet, and we're looking for more people. So again, if you're, if you're in those one of, one of those places, do get in touch. Or indeed, if you're somewhere else and you think, hey, I want to try to set up a, a reading group, a local reading club, again, also do get in touch. It'd be great. The more, the merrier. Um, and also lots of you who are already in established reading clubs are sending in your questions and contributing to this, which is great. That's what it's about. It's meant to be kind of a dialogical process, um, I guess you'd call it. Um, and you want to know oh what my the God, don't say dialogical I, what, what, do you want to know what the, the word just the dialogue fastest... <laughs> what's wrong with dialogue jesus oh, okay. the fastest growing one do you want to know which one it is what to steal a joke from ali g it's dublin because it just keeps dublin and dublin and dublin oh well okay thanks go. for that um the the few george fans that there are out there will no doubt appreciate so you know um anyway so um that's uh, that's it for the local reading clubs. Um, also to say in these reading clubs, we'll also address questions and comments we received from the previous one. And we'll do that here rather than in the alpha bonus bonus episodes where we respond to all the questions and comments about other, other episodes. Uh, there weren't any actually with regard to the last one, which is on uh, Giorgio Agamben. 
But if you, just to let you know that if you have comments on this one, we'll address them in the next reading club and not in Alpha Bonus Bonus. Okay, that's enough for the announcement. Phil, uh, take it away. So we're doing his, um, Fear, History of a Political Idea, which was written by Corey Robin, political theorist in CUNY. Um, and it was published in 2004. Is that right? Yeah, that's right, 2004. So the reason I wanted to do this one as part of our um, series was, I mean, quite obviously, I mean, you know, as the name should suggest, I thought it would be useful to revisit it in light of the insanity of um, the last couple of years with um, pandemics and lockdowns. And I mean, I suppose my views on these questions will be familiar to um, regular listeners of the podcast, but even irrespective of how people might feel about particular policies it seems to me there was no avoiding the fact that the politics of fear um perhaps for better or for worse i mean it seems to me for worse but nonetheless however you may view it that it was an important dynamic of lockdown and given the fact that the politics of fear and analyzing the politics of fear um came in an earlier period during the global war on terror and especially around the invasion of iraq in 2003 it seemed timely to revisit Corey Robin and I had read it some time ago um, and rereading it now for this purpose I was um, just struck by how good it was in many ways and we'll talk about how far it helps us to understand um, what's happened with lockdown. So probably no main... actually just to jump in but a lot of the sections of the book were previously published articles which were written in many cases before 9-11 um, so it's interesting, I guess, yes, you know, that he was, he was working on that before 9-11, before there was this massive event, which seemed to change everything, at least in regards to the politics of fear. But he was obviously conscious of, uh, of the uses of fear uh, before it even happened. Yeah. So, but getting, so getting stuck into the, what I think is a weakness, in fact, of the book, but it's connected to the structure is the kind of bait and switch So, well, it's connected to the argument ultimately, but it's the bait and switch structure of the so what he really wants to do is to motivate a discussion. He kind of draws you in by giving this, what I find a kind of very, um, a very insightful and useful overview of different political theories of fear. That's the bait and the switch then is to discuss the oppressiveness of the American workplace and the oppression of American labor, essentially, particularly in the neoliberal era. And the argument is that this is, a, you know, that this is in fact the kind of the substructure or the foundation of the politics of fear, what he calls fear American style. So the everyday fear is associated with the oppressiveness of the workplace. Um, and this is really the crux of people's actual experience of fear beyond the kind of... Um, apocalyptic or cataclysmic events associated with the war on terror such as the terror attacks of 2001 or getting frisked when you go on to a, before you go onto a domestic flight um, or indeed perhaps I suppose you know with uh, from our perspective today all of the kind of um, paraphernalia associated with the height of lockdown with masks and gloves and lockdowns and what have you um, so what do you guys think of the bait and switch structure? Is it legitimate? Is it convincing in terms of thinking of fear as the dominating experience of the workplace? I'm not, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm not entirely clear. I didn't seem obvious to me until reading your notes on this, that there was a bait and switch. 
sort of argument about it. I guess is is it is what you're saying that he draws you, the reader, as a liberal Democrat, um, into um, you know an understanding of how fear has been used and standing against that and thinking, okay, yeah, the politics of fear are really bad, and then going, aha, but look, you're overlooking this this key area. Yes, I think so. I think so because the argument seems to be that the um you know, that the real kind of experience of fear is associated with everyday life in the workplace, in civil society, in which you're dominated by, you know, a corporate hierarchy, a structure, or more directly, a boss. Um, and two things seem to me um, questionable about that. First of all is, like I say, it does seem to me somewhat like undercutting his earlier argument, because it seems like what he really wants to talk about is the erosion of New Deal era labor legislation and the structures associated with the New Deal. Um, and so he presents this kind of front of uh, discussion of the political history of the idea of fear. Um, but also, I'm just not convinced, I'm not convinced that fear is the dominant experience of the workplace, in fact. Fear of losing your job. You know, so for obviously millions and millions of people who live kind of from paycheck to paycheck, as they say, um, I think fear of losing your job is um, certainly kind of a fear associated with work. So but I think what's, what's your dominant, it was a dominant experience for you of the workplace in, in, a, not, in emotional terms, boredom, frustration, it's not joy? It's not representative, but that's what I was going to say. I mean, I would imagine, I'd, I would hazard to say that for most people, the experience might be drudgery, oppressiveness, you know, fear around particular part, particular points in the um, in the month, um, fear of losing your job, like I said, hatred of particular kind of superiors or um, maybe even co-workers. Um, fear of particular individuals and bosses and, you know, kind of supervisory and surveillance processes. But I think, I mean, if, if alienation characterizes um, the ordinary kind of workers' interaction, then it's a more kind of complex dynamic of repulsion and attraction, I think, um, rather than this kind of unrelieved atmosphere of fear. And in as much as work is oppressive, which I think it probably is, you know, for the majority of people, you know, it's a job and it's um, it will involve kind of routine and drudgery. In as much as it's oppressive, oppression isn't fear exactly, right? So I'm not convinced yeah, that I think... fear is the dominant experience. And this is what makes me think there's, you know, the bait and switch structure of the argument is illegitimate. There might be a, a, a broadening of the category of fear that he uses to in aid of his argument, which might be, I agree, maybe a bit flimsy in that regard. Um, I guess, I mean, in defense of it, you could say that it, the fear in the workplace is so naturalized that these things are accepted, right? Especially in the United States, where you have, you know, right to work legislation, where it's employment at will employment, which is a totally different experience to what you'd have in Western Europe, right? So I think that's important to, to note. Um, I mean, totally yeah. different, perhaps not, but it's, it's, there's a very significant difference there, right? Um, but that, but of- so that, and that goes directly to the point, right? which is that if we had the kind of workplace which had more protections, a New Deal era kind of protections which he presumably wants to, Corey Robin presumably wants to see restored, so that we had a workplace that was less drained of anxiety um, and less, you know, dominated by fear of the employer, would that mean that we would have less anxious, less fearful societies? And it's not clear to me that we would. 
right? Um, because mm. if we look at kind of social democratic European states, it's not clear to me that they are um, less fear prone societies than the US, and particularly in light of the pandemic. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I agree with your general characterization of, of bait and switch. I mean, I, th I mean, I think if you take and not to get too much into the into the topic into the like his exposition of Hobbes, which I think is the best bit of the book. But if if you'll if that's how he's understanding fear and what it actually means, it's quite like it's a passion bearing an effective uh, an elective affinity to reason. So it's not like a state of being constantly terrified, but it's a rational moral emotion. And I think there is like to the extent that relationship between an employer and an employee has coercion underneath it, there is a you know maybe that's that's the point that he's trying to he's trying to make and obviously i i also don't think like fear american style is just the workplace i think he gives a bit of a wider definition of it but i do and i sort of know what you mean about the the two very clear halves of the book you have the the exposition of the thinkers and then sort of the application and i was trying to think like is 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 there going to be another thinker added to the to the pantheon um and is this going to be cory robin and what would his theory like look like because I mean, it's, it's probably not as um, clear as Hobbes is, but it has certainly some some really interesting and distinctive characteristics to it. Well, well but we I mean, can make ar it arguably there is a fifth one, which is the the later Arendt, right? Um, which of course provides, I think, the at least the kernel of what his argument will then be. And this touches on what George was saying, and actually, it, it, it's that it's the banality not just of, ev of evil, but the kind of the way that fear is banalized in the workplace, I think, which kind of maybe gets to the is, is sort of but an even as you say thing. it, it's kind of crumbling away, right? Because going to work is not being in a concentration camp. No, no, that's that's right. But I guess it's the idea that and that's perhaps it, why he didn't kind of I mean, it seems very, it's a very good kind of critique of the origins, the way in which he kind of counterposes Aaron Zeichmann in Jerusalem with the origins of totalitarianism. It's a very effective critique of Aaron of you, you know, a critique of Aaron deploying Aaron's own ideas. But it seemed to me to kind of be left hanging. And very good critique of the PMC, I thought as well. And as much as he, you know, without using that label, he shows Eichmann essentially as a PMC kind of striver. Um, yeah. It kind of is left floating, basically. There's nothing, there seems to be no relevance to it in terms of the argument of fear. It, it again shows the PMC and their psychopathologies are the real motor force of history. Um, <laughs> yeah, the Georges, um... the Georges theory of history. <laughs> yeah. But no, um, I, I think the, yeah, the attempt to, I think it is a, it is a, a valid aspiration, the attempt to sort of apply, like to move from political history to, to kind of political analysis for the present. I think that is, that is legitimate. <laughs> and to kind of, I think he does support his, or, or at least convinced me that there's um, far more fear present in the US than we would like to believe. And that's even thinking that there was quite a high level to start with. So yeah. I've just got, I kind of came away with more reasons to be, reasons to be fearful, not reasons to be cheerful, reasons to be fearful, part I, three. I, I mean, I think there, I think there's a couple of things just in response to that. One is that I don't think he would, Corey, Robin would see contemporary Western European uh, social democracies such as they are, or indeed contemporary to when he was writing this in the early 2000s as his model of workplace. I think democracy. he definitely would. 
He uses, he so. talks about Dworkin, Ronald Dworkin and uh, John Rawls as the political theorists we need to go back to. But, but, those, but those welfare, but those, protections, the, but those protections are so eroded in Europe. You know, it's not, we're, we're not talking about 1970s Well, but Sweden, it's the political, know. well, no, but the political theory of the welfare state is the kind of theory, the liberalism, the kind of grand technocratic liberalism of, um, you know, the 1960s and 70s is the theory that he deploys. And, you know, quite strikingly as well, he talks about it as feudal despotism. He talks about the workplace as a kind of feudal despotism. Um, originating as as if it were kind of an artifact of British common law, um, like it's a kind of colonial hangover of the of Britain, you know, rather than seeing it as something which actually develops out of industrial capitalism itself, he he suggests that it's kind of a hangover that's um, at odds with the at odds with what should be kind of a modern functioning industrial democracy. So, I mean, I'm, I imagine he's probably sensitive to some of these, you know, criticisms. And I would even hazard to say that, you know, Corey Robin is probably politically radicalized since in the period since which he yeah. wrote the book. But nonetheless, you know, the book, this is the book that we're talking about. Um, the, the, there's one other thing just to add that, to that, I mean, as well, which George already highlighted, is that it's not just the workplace. I think there's a broader argument about oppression yeah, within civil society. Um, and he's trying to draw us attention, and especially because I think it's addressed to, to liberals, right? To, to liberals in which he sees this flagrant inconsistency in defending freedom and equality, um, which is in not seeing and not perceiving how much civil society can be um, conformist, you know, oppressive, um, can be conduits for, um, a, you know, a, for conduits for fear. And, and more than that, not just that they can be, but then in some ways kind of a thick civil society which is often seen as a good defense against tyranny is actually can sometimes actually be um the the best conduit for it and i think that's something that is is a, a kind of challenging idea especially if you or like we have often made the point about the lack of intermediary institutions and you talk about the lack of civic clubs and churches and whatever that those can often be quite oppressive institutions not just for their members but they can be conduits for um a society governed by fear and for and and which would be just generally oppressive so anyway that's something i'm, I'm sure we'll come on to discuss that but it's an important point so um as we've touched upon then so robin lays out four basic models of fear each model structured around the key political thinker um thomas hobbes montesquieu alexis de tocqueville and i'm going not going to do the um frenchified pronunciation and Hannah Arendt. Um, and I'd say I'd go further. I don't think it's just kind of, um, I'd go further than what George said. I think each one is um, analytical in itself. It's not just a kind of, uh, just a kind of history, but I think the presenting the paradigm in itself is um, analytically useful. So, but the way in which Robin offers it up here is a rational basis for loyalty to the state and therefore a precondition of collective life. Montesquieu's politics of fear is in fact a politics of terror in reaction to the absolutist state and the disintegrative effect of centralized state power, um, leaving nothing but kind of a morass of um, uh, isolated and hapless individuals. Tocqueville, rather than talking so much about the power of the despotic state, dis understands the politics of fear as this rootless anxiety which is fostered by modern society itself structured around the private sphere and equality and then Arendt 
um, who talks about totalitarian terror and the way in which, and in her model, and I thought this was, you know, it was in fact in some ways um, uh, chapters in the book, just in terms of reconstructing her theory in the way in which the self, um, that there is nothing beyond the kind of the, there is no purpose to the exercise of despotic power um, beyond power itself and the way in which it annihilates and destroys the ego. So those four models of power, or oh, sorry, four models of fear, anything to add or comment on that? I think, um, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of a table and like this is exactly the sort of stuff that you can put into a really good table um which i've already told you guys this is what i did with my notes it's just such a great table just so so please um, do share it with us um that that's only for maybe 30 dollar patrons can uh, can apply for a copy of it um anyway no but i just think the it just it it i think it's a it was definitely my favorite bit of the book and particularly the chapter on Hobbes, I thought was, was really, was really, really good. Um, and, you know, I was saying to you guys before made me just appreciate the, 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 the insight and the quality of, of Hobbes's thought. But um, yeah, I mean, I think, well, we could, we could go into any one of the four and kind of dig into the um, dig into the, the interpretation and, and the way that he, that he presents it. But I think the, yeah, they all added added quite a lot, but yeah, I'm, I'm not too much to add other than just I think it was it was good, and we can we can dig into it a bit. Well, I, I thought the movement that he traces, because I mean, it, of course, it's notable that one is a seventeenth century, a sixteenth, seventeenth century thinker, the next eighteenth, the next nineteenth, and the following one twentieth, um, and that's obviously a deliberate choice, um, and that there's it, it, it traces several I think trajectories in the use of fear. I mean, the first one. For you know Hobbes, and he keeps returning to Hobbes because for Hobbes it's a political instrument from that comes from the top down. It's from the state, um, and that's our specific purposes. And fear at that time is something which would be um, understood or could be understood if the state made its subjects feel that way. That the state of nature is the thing to be feared, right? And I think that's something also in the 17th century when so state sovereignty is pretty flimsy, right? There's vast areas of land which are basically not controlled properly fully by the state where you do have um you know kind of the levels of brigandry and all the rest of it which would would present um yeah a life which is nasty brutish and short and so on right um and so sorry can i sorry can i just can i just interrupt you because like hobbs hobbs you know like life is poor poor brutty nasty nasty and short it should be it's poor, nasty, brutish, but at least it's short. It's a bit like the Woody Allen joke the about joke, the food. Yeah. Okay. It's terrible okay. and the portions are so small. Okay. I don't know if I've made that joke before, but we were saying five years. Like, you've got to at least repeat repeat one of them. I, I think but yeah, have. no. I think you have. Anyway, the, so... But the, uh, okay, go on. So, but so, I mean, that, that fear serves a very political purpose in establishing um, state sovereignty and changing the self as well in, in terms of making them pursue kind of in some ways the good life through civil society and not search glory in kind of a medieval fashion where you just throw yourself headlong into adventures because you might die anyway so you know you might as well get some glory along the way um but the the trajectory as kind of the state becomes more formalized gains more power effectively sovereignty becomes established is that thinkers on fear move where fear comes from 
from the state down into the people, basically. And I think that's an important move, which um, Corey Robin is a pain throughout the book to counteract, right? So that fear is not something that it, that effectively fear is political and is a political instrument rather than being something that comes emerges from the soul of the subject in a democracy as in uh, Tocqueville where the, the 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 lonely crowd is anxious and uh, or even especially you know it, when you get to Arendt where it's like the kind of fear of freedom to, to use the title of um of, you know, Frank, well, kind of Frankfurt School thinker Eric Fromm's book, um, where the reasons for totalitarianism are to be found in people's fear of freedom, in their desire for domination, or in the authoritarian personality, and so on. Um, to the extent that by that point, it's not even something which is a product of democracy or the anxiety of the anxious crowd, as with Tocqueville, but by the time you get to the, the kind of pre-war, pre-Second World War Arendt, it's something which is just completely disembodied, autonomous, depersonalized, where it's a total system. Um, so it's not even a political instrument, not coming from the people, but it's just something that kind of exists. And it's a total fear with no subject behind it. So I think it's like, just to, just briefly, the context of all of the thinkers, like you, to, to be kind of crude about it, you could, you could say that basically each of these thinkers gives an account of what they're fearful of and says, that's what, you know, that's what the, the, um, builds a kind of entire theory around that. Hobbes kind of scared of the the, the revolutionaries of his time. Montesquieu scared of um, absolutism and wanting to defend autocratic power. Tocqueville scared of the masses and their entrance into politics. And Arendt scared of of kind of totalizing ideologies and and then the PMC. So I mean, it doesn't entirely fit and probably works less well with Hobbes, but. There is something to that, that the, you know, the context, <laughs> it's always, it helps to be a little bit vulgar and, and crude in history of political thought, because it's like, yeah, they were scared of no, these things. But that's, and so and therefore they said, that's what the theory of fear is about. No, and that's right. But, and that's directly connected to the transformation of the state and to the thickening of society, I think as well. Um, right. That you have a thickening of civil society, civil society grows so that you can have by the time of the 18th century, you know, a mass democracy, which can present a threat, um, sorry, 19th century. Um, and by the 20th century, one where you can have such kind of um, insidious power going through all of this from the state and society. In fact, that there's the melding of the state and society under totalitarianism, that this fear can be kind of transmitted everywhere. Um, and I think, I mean, that I think that's an adequate description of kind of what happened, even though I totally agree with Robin. And I agree with Aaron's own critiques of, of her earlier work, which maybe we can come on to. So one thing I found very useful also in this was a reminder of the early insanity of the war on terror as well. Because, um, you know, I mean, it's not that I was unaware of it at the time, but looking back, um, you know, my memory of the war on terror, my personal memory of the war on terror is largely the public memory, which is to say Guantanamo Bay, um, the invasion of Iraq, the... You were in Guantanamo claim, Bay? The phony claim about the weapons of mass destruction. So, and I'd forgotten about all these kind of little irrationalities of... Um, you know, kind of uh, the crackdown on small dissident groups that Michael Moore talked about a great deal, you know, kind of neighborhood kind of, um, you know, little neighborhood committees of um, uh, kind of, you know, old grand peace, grandmas for peace, 
would be surveilled by the FBI and this kind of thing. Not to mention, obviously, the no-fly lists, um, people kind of checking out the wrong books out of libraries, ending up on um, state surveillance lists, and all of these kind of stories, which seem to have so many echoes in all the little kind of absurdities and excesses that we've seen more recently with the pandemic. So it was a useful reminder to me that the kind of the micro level politics of the war on terror as well. Um, not to mention the also the stories, you know, the kind of uh, tales he recounts of the way in which various government agencies use the opportunity to further kind of push um, labor organizing to the wall um, with uh, using the kind of greater executive power and general atmosphere of emergency through the war on terror. So that that aside, um, do we do any of these models, which is to say Habesian, Montesquieu, Tocqueville, Arendt, how do they fit, if at all, with the war on terror and with COVID? So I think you can, uh, again, to be crude, this is going to be my, my theme, to get, um, Hobbes, throw that out the window. We don't have sovereignty. Um, totalitarian terror, that also goes out the window because we don't have ideology anymore. Maybe banality of evil and the second Arendt theory you know, that, that can potentially be retained. But I think it's kind of a, a swinging between terror and anxiety. I think there's definitely something about this. So when he's talking about Topville, the um, <clears throat> anxiety not being a tool of power, but he says a permanent psychic state of the mass, um, not response to state repression, but what induces it. And I think that is particularly with COVID that <laughs> resonated with me at least, and kind of swinging between that and a kind of terror. So he says, <clears throat> for Montesquieu, terror satisfies only the depraved needs of the savage despot. And it's like, well, if you if you replace savage despot with with Tory prime minister, then that that kind of um, maybe fits as well. But I think my basic my basic point would be there's I think this there is something about a um, an anxiety being definitely the, the kind of seedbed um of a lot of this and then a kind of uh i don't know a kind of an, a, a, a psychological aspect um well, which is the case in all of them obviously but the the terror that's that's um delivered to us by the state the deliberate kind of ramping up of of various things and and elevation of threats that seems to fit more with the with the terror model that he kind of develops from Montesquieu. But I mean, I think the the Montesquieu the problem with Montesquieu is that it he he locates the you know that terror in the 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 self the you know the subject of the despot themselves right and then and as Corey Robin notes those are all things that can be described as kind of one of the regular seven deadly sins, right? That the despot is, you know, uh, avaricious, gluttonous, bloodthirsty. Uh, what's the one for sex? Whatever. I don't recognize sins of sex. So I don't know. Lust. <laughs> Lust. Lustful. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and so on, right? It's like a Caligula figure. Um, and that isn't appropriate at all to the war on terror i mean in fact those that would be the dumbest critique of the war on terror to, to see it located in george w bush's bloodthirstiness right and the kind of like the worst you can imagine the worst anti-war placard in one of the demonstrations that would kind of be a montesquian understanding of it um so i don't think that necessarily fits i think i'm sure the banality the banality of evil type of thing 
you know, definitely applies where, you know, security agents want to rise up and they create more problems, which then need to be solved and so on. I think that's applies across the board and it's, you know, very astute, I think, um, Robin's discussion of it. Um, but isn't it here just more uh, Hobbesian? I mean, the, the, the state, the, I mean, the US state is sovereign, right? Um, I don't think you can't say that, you know, we don't have sovereignty um and but i think the reason the reason the more serious reason why i'd reject hobbes is because my understanding was that it's like it's a tool of political order it serves the rules the rulers and the ruled but this this doesn't serve the ruled. there is no there's no way in which um the war on terror or responses to covid were really in the benefit of the ruled i mean i, I think you've, you've persuaded yeah, me though montesquieu out the window we're down I, to Tocqueville and I second think... Arendt. I think George is right. I mean, I'm not I'm not convinced of the second Darren thing, because I think the banality of evil point, again, I mean, I think it's too attached to the Holocaust to really be, um, you know, to really be able to transplant kind of the account of Eichmann's behavior to the account of some kind of guy who's, you know, tormenting um, you know, Muslim kind of passengers on a no-fly list who works in some anonymous kind of FBI office. I don't think the I don't think that works so effectively as as kind of transplanting that idea. But that aside, um, I think George is right because the point I think is in the Habesian model, right, that you buy in to you believe in the rationality of collective order, right? You understand that it makes sense to be afraid of certain kinds of things. And you understand that you can only enjoy certain things if you are around to actually benefit from them. And therefore it is rational to be afraid of death and disorder, or rather the death that follows on disorder. And that seems to me not to really fit with the, um, the kind of the fluid and shifting and amorphous character of the way in which fear worked both in the particularly in the early phases of the war on terror and um, not least during the lockdowns no but surely it does work quite well i agree it doesn't work so well with the war on terror but it works with the lockdown because you're exposed to disease um and there needs to be a collective actor which promises protection in exchange for you know limiting freedoms which will then keep you safe from disease because otherwise disease will proliferate in a kind of um, you know, ungoverned space. So I think I think it works very well in that instance. I'm not sure because I think the point is that it, it you know it doesn't seem to me to be the idea that it produces. I think the point is like that the model is the Habesian model is that it produces a rational law. It should produce a rational kind of law governed orderly civil society, not a civil society which is fearful and. Um, atomized right society mm -hmm. is the product it's the state of nature that is atomized society a functioning kind of integrated society is the product of a reaction against the state of nature so yeah I kind mean, of shredding society and getting everybody kind of to be cowering at home for fear of catching a disease that doesn't seem to me to really work for the order producing effects that fear is supposed to achieve yeah, in the I think that's fair. so I think it's almost that lockdown was like a postmodern state of nature, right? Where you have the war of all against all, but everybody completely atomized. And to, to further extend this, you know, the, that famous um, illustration of the Leviathan in, in, in Hobbes's book of the same name is almost like 
to do a lockdown is the sovereign is disaggregating itself and like kind of cutting a hole and all the little people are pouring out back to their homes so that's why i don't think it works because the sovereign wouldn't wouldn't do that it decreases the sovereign's power by demobilizing society in that way that's my I, I, yeah. have a, yeah, I, I have a point, but I think we'll come back to it later because there's some questions about this, but actually a Hobbes in response to the pandemic would actually be the right, would have been the right one actually, rather than what actually happened. Um, but anyway, um, I was going to say actually more specifically, because this is something I haven't made my mind up about, but the war on terror was, you know, um, happened over and against an atomized society. How do we read that in light of, uh, Tocqueville, right? Where there, the yeah. a thick civil society is an important um, means of resisting kind of tyranny and the tyranny of the masses as well. So the, um, I mean, I think this was one of the most kind of striking points in Corey Robbins' book is where he connects the, as he suggests, there's a structural connection between these kind of imperial expeditions um colonial crusades and uh, liberalism of anxiety. So the liberalism of terror, as he puts it in the post-Cold War period and the liberalism of anxiety are kind of um, interconnected. So he sees that all the kind of the um, critics of the degeneration of um, liberal welfareism. So people like Christopher Lash, Daniel Bell, the neoconservative critics of the 1960s welfare state and the decay of the New Deal kind of model, that they all went in, lent into these kind of Tocquevillian themes of the decay of civil society, um, its disaggregation, and that they welcomed or that their um, followers at least welcomed the idea of the ability for or the search for moral renewal on the international stage, and that this became part of the um, idea of the liberalism of terror. People like Michael Ignatia, Francis Fukuyama in the post-Cold War era looking for projects of moral ordering through humanitarian intervention essentially so he connects the idea of a critique of the domestic of domestic society and its insipidness its um, disintegrative effects its lack of social cohesion and the need for these kinds of um, imperial crusades that establish that establish a moral order um i'm not abroad. sure I agree with the emphasis that you seem to be putting on Robin's reading of Tocqueville. My understanding was that he sort of sees what's Tocqueville afraid of. He's afraid of the masses. It's, it's, it's the, the crashing entrance of so many untrained political actors made it impossible. And this is a liberal kind of fear for anyone to undertake on his own significant political action. So it's not a fear of society being this way or that way. It's just like, all these people who are just fucking idiots who are now going to come and try and do political things which means it's going to be impossible for the individual to actually you know act politically so it's that fear that the mass not the individual drives events it's that loss of of control rather than a kind of constraining social or, or like a certain sort of social context well that was my no i think that's right? that's that's accurate but also that at the same time um, that Tocqueville found kind of liberal parliamentarianism 
of enervating. Um, the timidity of kind of, of liberal interest-based politics was nothing like the grandiosity of the Napoleonic and revolutionary era. And um, Corey Robin is very explicit about this. And so he finds this kind of world historic purpose in these great imperial expeditions, in particular, the French colonization of Algeria. And it's right, you know, I mean, bearing in mind, obviously, that the post-Napoleonic period is the first, the original end of history period, you know, as we talk about in our book, um, the parallels seem to me to be very uh, similar, that you had kind of liberal thinkers making the same kind of move in the post-Cold War era. They were frustrated with the kind of petty materialism, and there is a critique of the mass in there, right? Everyone is just at home kind of watching trash TV and just interested in their boring kind of um, consumerist lifestyles. Why are they so greedy and self-interested when they should be kind of roused by great projects of democratizing the Middle East? Um, and so there was kind of a structural connection and that you, he cites all these liberal thinkers who find um, their apotheosis in grand projects of liberal reordering. And there is an end of history connection, which he doesn't bring out, but I think is worth kind of stressing, which is this idea that if it's impossible to improve one's own society, then all that's left is the improvement of other people's societies. And so there is the, um, the interlinking of the two. So, I mean, anyway, this is, we're perhaps getting a bit off topic, but it seems to me we're circling around Tocqueville, this rootless kind of anxiety as the theoretical model that seems to be the most kind of effective for explaining the kind of expansionist tendencies of the war on terror, or at least its militaristic outward face, as well as the way in which it kind of functions internally. Um, and I think also perhaps with uh, COVID too, we didn't see kind of a belligerent outward face, but in terms of rootless anxiety, which is connected to dislocation and atomization, that would seem to me to be Tocquevillian more than anything else. Yeah, no, I think um, <clears throat> I think that's about right. And it's, you know, you can see the utility in having, it's almost like a reservoir of anxiety that's there and doesn't have a particular object. And then when you need it, you can put this specific object and that's where the anxiety gets, gets um, transformed into fear. And then you kind of go back to the state of, heightened anxiety so it is the the more anxiety that that's, that's there the you know you it's naturally an expansionist um or enables expansionist projects i think i think that's right so this takes us straight to um listener questions and we've got um we had we had so a few of them and we collect them from both from the patron but also from uh social media account so please um please do when you send them and, the and from from local um uh reading groups themselves as well right yeah uh sorry that's what i meant yeah so from the local reading groups and we wanted in particular to focus on um some questions that were brought from the london reading group not only because they were very good but also because they were there several ones that were kind of interdependent kind of logically and structurally and so we thought it would be useful to unfold them as a way of um continuing the discussion and particularly mm -hmm. because it moves straight into the question of ukraine which the Ukraine crisis would seem to be a challenge to the politics of fear, which is that the the flip that I'm sure that um, we've spoken about it before on here, but also I'm sure many of our listeners have observed it as well, where you have the people who are kind of cowering at home in terror of COVID have suddenly kind of been gung-ho about the possibility of nuclear war. And on the face of it, that seems um, to be entirely contradictory 
terror of um, terror of a highly kind of discriminatory respiratory disease versus the willingness to embrace you know total kind of um, annihilation through the most extreme possibility of war with a nuclear armed great power. So the question was, will the Ukraine crisis be able to serve the same function? Or will it be harder to depoliticize something as explicitly political as a war? And this is the question here from this was the first question from the London Reading Group, where they were talking about how um, Corey Robin talks about the fact that the politics of fear is used to depoliticize, to shut things down. Um, and like I say, it doesn't seem to me that if that was the if that is the kind of political politics of fear associated with Ukraine, it doesn't seem to be working because it seems rather to be spurring people on to war fever rather than recoiling um, and granting kind of authority to the state to act on their behalf to protect them. So how did you guys, um, do you guys have anything to kind of add to this? Because the Ukraine crisis does seem to disintegrate the question of the centrality of the politics of fear. Yeah. I'm not sure. And it does. I mean, one, well, one way to first, look at it. You know, at first glance, at yeah. least, I mean, you know, let's get into it. Yeah. No, but I mean, one way to look at it was that there was a kind of bit of an anticlimax of the politics of fear around, maybe this is always the case, um, that the, 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 it's like in a horror film, whenever you actually see the, the bad, the baddie, it's like, it's not as frightening as you thought it was going to be. Um, but yeah, it's like COVID didn't turn out to be as dangerous as people were worried that it was so therefore i don't want to be too psychoanalytic about it but you need to bring into being something which justifies that level of um fearfulness so you have a, <laughs> a drive towards willing nuclear war or winning that possibility possibility because then it justifies the fear that you've been feeling that would be my my first my first pass um, I think obviously you have to look at the, the politics and the, the material and class position of the people who are particularly kind of fitting these these groups that you were describing. But that's maybe there is a psychoanalytical element. Well, one of our previous guests, Mark Simpson, um, who was on to talk about gay liberation politics, he made this point on Twitter that for the people kind of who seem to be um, uh, all in favor of escalating the conflict, the proxy war in Ukraine with Russia and driving, you know, kind of skirting as close as possible to the to a nuclear showdown. They assume that it'll just be another lockdown, like nuclear war is just another lockdown. I get to work from home again. I'll get Amazon and Deliveroo kind of um, brought to me. It might take a bit longer because of the nuclear war, but basically I'll be safe at home, you know, on the Internet in my pajamas, won't have to go in anymore. And obviously he was being um, he was being kind of facetious and tongue in cheek, but he was I think he had a point. Was he, in his, was he really? Well, maybe, I think, maybe not. Hmm. But I think what was you know what was good about the point was that he was trying to identify what is the kind of common theme between the fearful kind of cowering at home and the seeming embrace of something which is you know kind of far more threatening, nuclear war. Yeah, I the. I mean, on one level, it all, the Ukraine crisis offers a nice, easy way to wind down COVID, wind, you know, wind down the pandemic in terms of the political choices which are made um, without having to really account for it, 
right? So you can just kind of, okay, well, the kind of pandemic's over because now there's this Ukraine thing and you don't have to say, you don't have to explain why or why anything is changing or why pand- why all these pandemic measures were necessary and then could be taken down, you know, et cetera. You just, there's, and you don't need to account to them either to people who are lockdown skeptics or to people who are in favor of, you know, continuing it until there's no more COVID on earth, right? Um, so I think in that way, it's just convenient. The other thing is that, uh, you know, it, I, it is perplexing because you would expect the mode of making of kind of fear making, especially during the pandemic, was based on a lot of hypotheticals, effectively the precautionary principle. Right. What if this were to happen? And often basing a lot of things on worst case scenarios rather than looking at what is actually happening. Um, and so that kind of extends as much as possible the exceptionality of the pandemic when really the objective should have been, yes, it's an exceptional situation, it's a global pandemic, but the objective should be as much to handle it as best as possible and keep vulnerable people safe and healthy and so on, while maintaining business as usual as much as possible. I think that would be a, a you know kind of reasonable aim for, for the, the pandemic to be dealt with. Um, and instead, of course, it was always ramped up through hypotheticals. You know, what if long COVID? What if da-da-da-da-da? And it's interesting with Ukraine, you're not getting what ifs, you know, you're not getting these hypotheticals being constantly fed into the public sphere via the media saying, but what if this leads to this and then this terrible thing happens? It's in fact, it's the opposite. It's the, they're, they're, they try to tone down as much as possible, any what ifs, because it's like, hey, but what if nuclear war, but then that's fine, you know, like, um, which is the complete opposite in terms of attitude to risk that, that, uh, that yeah. kind of COVID rep- represented. So there's certainly an emergency. There's a politics of emergency, which is very visible, right? I mean, and that's obviously the kind of the convenience of the way in which the Russian invasion of Ukraine has been used, like you say, to perpetuate a rule of emergency. That seems, I mean, I think that's visible. Well, I don't know, but if it's perpetuate rule by emergency, because in a way it's shelving all that, you know, the COVID stuff just is gone, right? Emergency. No, but it's emergency in the sense of lack of accountability, right? Um, It's emergency in the sense of promoting, uh, you know, kind of um, executive action, decisiveness, um, and the executive arms of the state as opposed to the legislative kind of deliberative arms of the state. Um, It shelves the need, you know, the questions, like you say, of what happened with COVID, who's going to be held responsible for mistakes and so on. let alone kind of questions of the future. You know, all of these things are kind of put to one side in the need to face down um, the Russian expansionist threat. So all of that is, uh, you know, that is a politics of emergency, but it's not, it doesn't seem to be motivated by a politics of fear. Um, There are, you know, I mean, you could kind of make parallels, I suppose, in as much as you could say that there is kind of similar aspects of association that we again we have kind of um people who are to be people the kind of the sympathetic group who are to be defended the ukrainians um in this case the vulnerable previously under covid um and that you have the people who are the threat the unvaccinated previously or the people who refuse to kind of conform and wear masks and so on and in this case um the russians who are um threatening the vulnerable and so there is kind of a parallel um there is a parallel kind of um in terms of the way in which the actors the political actors um 
deploy themselves from one scenario to another. And I'm thinking in particular here of the people, you know, and I'm sure you've people, I'm sure our listeners have seen them, the people who kind of have the Ukrainian, the masked emoji with the Ukrainian flag on the mask. And so I think that kind of redeployment is, um, you know, that is pretty obvious, I think, as well. Yeah, I mean, the, the point about vulnerability, that is that is crucial. I mean, it's definitely something, it's not it's not completely straightforward how this, you know, how you, to have a fear, you need to have fear, you need to have a fearing subject, you need to have a vulnerable subject as well. Um, but yeah, no, I don't have... I don't have too much more to add because there's some some very very good questions from uh, they're all interconnected so we we should probably move on to the next one yeah so um uh, this more of a comment than the question from the London Reading Group, but Robin argues liberalism has required a negative foundation, the fear of fear. The COVID-19 virus was the ideal vector for this fear as it could be presented as an apolitical object requiring coll a collective but equally apolitical solution. The second question is um, from the London Reading Group. The modern left often decries authority and by extension fear in both the political and interpersonal spheres. Is there anything in Hobbes's account of authority that could be recuperated by the left? Yeah. I'm trying to disentangle this question. Um, so the left decries authority. I think that we're, we're, we're agreed with. And it, decry and, it, and it decries fear in the political and interpersonal spheres. I'm not sure that's right. I mean, even, I mean, even you know, the, the kind of oppressive um, kind of censorious climate which has created um, you know, so-called cancel culture um, is a mobilization of fear um, for political ends, which the left has largely been, you know, largely pursued, the so-called left. Um, and so, you know, the, I, I'm not sure, and that often is more in interpersonal spheres rather than in political spheres, because it's you, mm. you know, you said racist thing, and then you should be shut down. Um, and, uh, and, yeah. and also fear, also mobilization of fear of, you know, there are racists or sexists or, you know, whatever kind of uh, deplorables in society, which are going to oppress me, or even saying something will um, in, uh, instigate violence against vulnerable groups, right? And it can be about anything. And that's also the usage, usage of fear, you know, kind of for, for kind of political purposes. So I'm not sure the left, I think the left does it in terms of much more traditional, or did in terms of more traditional state uses of fear, like with the war on terror, but it has the part of the left's generation, I think, is also that there's now very few on the left who will stand out or sufficiently stand against the new kind of forms of fear that are mobilized. That's actually a really good point. I didn't think of it that way, but I think that's right, right? That the left says there's too much fear in the political sphere and sort of too little in the personal sphere or the interpersonal sphere. We should be more fearful, like, like, yeah, think about um, <clears throat> the various sorts of harms that can be can be done. We actually we don't have enough fear, and so it is a kind of um, a, a contradictory position. To the point on authority, though, I think this is an an extremely <laughs> extremely good question, and I think that's what is the model of authority that that we should be looking towards, and we should be trying to constitute. Like, how can we? how can we constitute a democratic model of authority? Like, what does this actually look like? Hobbes is one of the thinkers that 
you know, provide some some ways into thinking about this in terms of sovereignty. But what is the like? What is the what are the effective or emotional dimensions of this? I mean, yeah, it's a pretty it'd be a pretty bold claim to make that we need to be fully Hobbesian in embracing um, fear and putting ourselves in the position of the uh, sovereign handling this rational emotion, kind of playing on its theatrical uh, qualities and um, <clears throat> kind of promoting the idea that it, um, against the enlightenment view that fear restricts choice, instead fear uh, of death is necessary for the sorts of pro projects, political and personal, we want to, to undertake. So I would add two points here, I think. I think it's a fantastic question, if not perhaps, you know, perhaps maybe indeed you know the central question for if the left is ever to be a meaningful kind of political force ever again it is perhaps the central question of our time um if i you know could be so if i could risk being so grandiose but i'd say two things is the first don't I be think afraid is, don't be afraid of being grandiose that's not usually my problem trust me um the first thing is the um you know, so I think, and this is good about the Robin Robin's account of Hobbes, to get away from the kind of war on terror image of Hobbesian fear politics. It's I'm not, not like Hobbesian. It's the Hobbesian. It is Who Hobbesian. Hobbesian? No, it's not Hobbesian. It's I was Hobbesian. I was going to interrupt and say, please stop saying Hobbesian, even yeah. if that is correct. Please stop saying it. But I okay. thought that would just be such now, a dick move. Now it didn't. is a dick move, and I'm going to keep on but saying it, it even more now. But is his name Hobbes? His name, oh, shut up. Anyway, as I was saying before, you're trying to make Thomas me lose hobbies. my... You're trying to make me lose my um, chain of thought, but the lose the thread of my thought. It's not kind of a bureaucrat cooking up way, you know, a bureaucrat in some kind of deep state security agency cooking up ways to keep the population divided and fearful and atomized. That isn't the model. The model is, in fact, that we get from the rational understanding of fear and why we should be, you know, there are things that should be feared, that you produce an integrated, functioning, well-ordered society in which actually trust is possible between the citizens within that state and all the benefits that come from social cooperation. Um, art, culture and science, and there's the famous kind of list um, where Hobbes says, once you're emancipated from um, fear for your own security and fear of everybody else, then it is possible to the kind of the to unlock uh, the springs of um, social cooperation. So um, that I think, you know, if that is the understanding of what the effect, the aim is, then, you know, that is an important one, right? And this is, and then to kind of bend the stick in the other direction, where I think Robin, Corey Robin loses it with Hobbes, is presenting him purely as, a, or, you know, tending to present him as a counter-revolutionary thinker, um, rather than as a thinker who kind of, who's so important that he effectively um, rewires the way in which we think about fundamental categories. And so he Casts him purely as a kind of, you know, reacting against the um, the willingness of the revolutionaries, the Protestant revolutionaries of the 1600s, to their willingness to seek glory and to reconstruct society with no care or concern for themselves or no fear of death. Um, and that, I think, is to under, under, underestimate the significance of how Hobbes, in fact, um, simply restructures our understanding of the relationship between the individual society and 
authority. So I would say that there is, I mean, not to say that we should be motivated. I don't know that we, you know, that it's possible to meaningfully recuperate an idea of authority built around a rational fear understood as rational emotion, but it's something, you know, to think about, I'd say, but that aside, I think certainly the idea of authority should be recuperated. Um, and this goes to a kind of connected question, which is whether the state. Oh, sorry, sorry. Just, just before, just before we move on, I just wanted to, to, I think to answer the question directly or to, to bring in um, Tocqueville a little bit as well. I think that the, the, the element of Hobbes's account of authority that, that could be recuperated or that, that it seems to me to be so important is that, that idea that you have or of the sovereign to, to a certain extent, you have this, like there, there's a recognition of political power in the sovereign. Um, and that's, <clears throat> that's something like, are, is, is that your approach to authority? Or are you going to take the Tocquevillian one where, where this is what Robin says about Tocqueville, the canvas of revolutionary demo democracy depicted a gathered Hulk with no recognizable human feature uh, of discrete parts. I think I must've misread that or missed copied that down, but it just came, came to me that like, that, that's the Leviathan. That's the account of authority, the picture. And then for Tocqueville, it's a, it's a gathered Hulk. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's the, like, kind of a basic point, maybe like to be, to be, af to, to be afraid of the gathered Hulk of the masses or to, to recognize that's where political power lies. And that's where political authority ultimately stems from two different approaches. I suppose it's also the difference, you know, the left kind of image of, um, you know, kind of the romantic view of of left politics, that it's, um, you know, constant demonstrations and flag waving and banner waving, that it is lots of kind of um, small meetings and struggle sessions where you achieve kind of greater insight into your own um, your own motivations where you connect with people in new kind of solidaristic forms on this small kind of scale, you challenge and overthrow existing authority and all of that kind of romantic, the carnivalesque aspect of revolution um, misses the other dynamic, right? Which is the reconstitution or the aim, at least in the classical model was the reconstitution of new forms of authority, new forms of um, social and political life in common. And so to that extent, you know, there is no there is no avoiding that question of authority. I mean, it's the one that's overlooked. And this was I mean, this is, you know, Zizek's criticism mm. of um, of the of leftist thinkers um, in the current era. So, so I wanted before to we move, move to, just, yeah. it was page 75. So listeners slash readers can go and get that quote that I mangled. We should actually always attribute page page numbers to everything that we quote. Just so that our, mo our most diligent and um, academic type listeners can go and find it and underline it or circle it or strike you, through it or whatever. Like, if you like scholarly pursuits, that's what you should do. <laughs> so the um, so one of the connected questions was, is socialism or barbarism a fundamentally Habesian formulation? And this, I think, is a genuinely kind of fascinating question. So, and I don't know that I have a complete answer to it, but I can give a partial answer to it at least which is the, so the statement is famously, it's become kind of more common. It's been recycled in recent times, particularly by eco-Marxists and eco-socialists, that with the implication this time that barbarism being the kind of disintegration of civilization under the stress of climate migration, a warming world, the collapse of agriculture and what have you. And the only way to avoid it is to reconstruct 
our economic system around um, to get past capitalism. The original kind of um, the original formulation was uh, contained in Rosa Luxemburg's anti-war pamphlet, the so-called Junius pamphlet, which was published in the middle of the First World War. And there she formulated the political choice in terms of the what was involved was the you know the fact that um, the working class men of Europe were um, massacring each other in direct contradiction to the um, collective aims of the labor movements prior to the war, who said that they would um, disable any kind of rush to war through um, coordinated general strikes. So was it a Habesian formulation? In the Junius pamphlet it was, right? And she very clearly understood it. It was Habesian in the sense as much as she want, she understood the question was one of political supremacy. Who would rule? Would it be the imperialists who would um, capture kind of working class um, political interest and agency for their own projects? Or would it be the working class kind of achieve its own rule independent of imperialist um, influence? And that's a very different proposition from the socialism or barbarism today. So if we think of kind of a Malm version, an Andreas Malm version of socialism or barbarism, for Malm it's emergency rule, right? So for, for, for Rosa Luxemburg it's a new order, right? A prolet the prolet dictatorship of the proletariat, whereas for Malm it's emergency rule. So we need, instead of like a new kind of Leviathan, it is a the existing Leviathan or the existing political order has to be mobilized to the project of ecological transformation under an emergency, whether or not the workers are in charge or not, we don't have time for that, right? I'm not, I'm not sure that is, I'm not sure if that is Malm's argument though. I mean, I, in any case, I think there would be an eco-socialist argument, which would say that, you know, it needs to be revolution and that emergency power, emergency rule. Yes. That's the dictatorship of the proletariat. Um, the, the the proletariat is sovereign and they decide on the exception yeah so you're um, making would... you're making but you're making the general i think in terms of what politically eco-socialism amounts to um you know that is that seems to me it so it's not actually it's not it doesn't it's not the habesian line that i've been saying because it's not about the reconstruction of political authority so I think that in the original formulation, um, in Rosa Luxemburg's original formulation, the idea was of reconstructing a new political order. Whereas in the eco-socialist version, it seems to me that it's about providing legitimation for the existing order. Precisely because there is no, um, and that in retooling our existing political institutions in order to meet the climate crisis and the natural resource crisis and what have you that that in itself is already staving off barbarism yeah or and that at least, seems to or, me to yeah, be the difference or, or at least that it's optional i mean because the emergency provides the motive for taking state power then then that then that you know authority can be reconstituted but if not <laughs> you know if not then at least the, the current order should do something right so the eco so i'd say so in answer to the listeners this is my this is what i'd hazard as my a first formulation of a response right that the eco-socialist version of socialism or barbarism is not habesian because it's about motivating it's about perpetuating the existing order through fear rather than the idea that a rational functioning cohesive society can be f can 
um, and a stable basis of authority can be found through a rational fear. So socialism or barbarism, the original, it seems to me you could make the case it's a kind of a revolutionary Habesian understanding, a revolutionary vision of Hobbes, um, whereas the eco-socialist inflection of it doesn't seem to me to be that. Okay, well, I mean, I think we should maybe return to this at some other point and discuss eco-socialism directly rather than kind of um yeah well, I agree. I mean, we otherwise will, there's a no, risk of straw manning eco-socialism as well so not, not no that doubt I'm a we fan, will return yeah no I doubt hope, we will return to it i hope that's sustainable straw mm. um but just i have i have a concept which i've been trying to i uh, anyway which i've which i've had in my mind which is like it's negative mobilization so it's this might either be genius or like completely banal and probably the latter but like it's 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 an attempt to mobilize using essentially a a blackmail or a fear and i think this is the dominant mode of kind of of kind of left and eco-socialist appeal i'm not just yeah uh, that's that's corey robin's main argument i mean throughout the book or and that's his conclusion i mean that that the mobilization of fear cannot be used for great purposes and that the left although you know in some ways fear is unavoidable that it has to be based on some idea of liberal uh, liberty and equality that has to be pursued and that even when it was taught you know even with the civil rights struggle yes there was fear of racist racist backlash or something but it was premised on the idea of creating a more equal and free society of justice and so on um and I, and I agree that today, generally, the left has only recourse to its own politics of fear, whether it's do this because of rising fascism, you know, which is or um, environmental collapse or whatever, that it has no real positive vision of of a, of a more free and equal society. Negative mobilization. There you go. So the final question from the London Reading Group was that um, observing the fact that Corey Robin doesn't really draw on psychoanalytic accounts of fear. And I think, again, this was a wonderfully kind of incisive question, because the is it possible, the um, the question suggests that there is a kind of a frisson to fear, that there is an appeal to fear which draws people to it. Um, and so that it's not something which can purely be understood as something against which people react or which is purely repellent in its effects, but that actually people seek out fear. Um, uh, jouissance or ex- exhilaration for the jouissance or exhilaration that it provides. And the group, the Le- London Re group asked, what would be the political implications of this view? Nihilism. It's, it, I mean, if you, if you're actively like looking for, for fear and terror, it's quite a dark um, road to go down. I mean, but not you, to you say like, that. But you like oh, to cultivate a fear of the PMC and how they dominate everything. So that's your own version of that, you know. I, I also have a negative mobilization. I, I'm. It's all about the fear of the PMC. Um, but no, I mean, obviously, people do search out, um, particularly in cultural contexts, um, fear. Like horror films are many people's favorite genre, and it's there is something about the you know, the psychological and physiological response to fear, which in certain ways can be very appealing. I guess the question is, do, like, is the way that we live at the moment more likely to um, make you go out searching for fear in in political contexts? And I think, like, two two things. Like, on the one hand, I would say, and this is not just generalising to the whole of society from my experience of, of work, but, like, many people have told me that, Job, their jobs are more, you know, just more 
boring and and blood the bloodless PMC um, life. That's what makes you know us search out these kind of murder shows on TV. On the other hand, we maybe are more structurally materially subject to to fear in the sense of being more atomized and more you know actually more materially vulnerable in the sense of not having um collect institutions which facilitate collective responses to things so i guess my answer to this is maybe does overlook it a little bit but i can't see what the doesn't seem easy to me what the and i don't want to say fascism but i don't see what the kind of uh, a politics that's looking to embrace fear for the exhilarate for the um, sake of exhilaration would actually really look like it's well i mean isn't, i mean isn't climate change politics today exactly that you know i was going to um, say the closest that robin comes to it i think though is in um it's when he's talking about philip uh, gorovich in rwanda right who's thrilling to the um, yeah, sites yeah. of massacred, you know, the mass graves of um, corpses strewn about, um, the skeleton, and the way in which there was a whole kind of generation of journalists and analysts and intellectuals, um, you know, Samantha Power being another one, for instance, Michael Ignatiev, we've already mentioned, who um, were incredibly, you know, they kind of turned these uh, ethnic civil wars in the aftermath of the Cold War into their own psychodramas, essentially. Yeah. And that seems to me, so there was, yeah. yeah, so that kind of um, thrilling delight in um, social collapse and the all the existential kind of dread that comes with the possibility that your neighbors who you've lived with in peace for generations might turn on you for some kind of ancient ethnic um some ancient ethnic kind of slight which is obscure to everybody else you know that i think is the closest that Corey robin comes to it um and i think that answers the question of what the political implications are right that there is kind of a there is a aspect of that and i suppose that's the intelligentsia's account of it and perhaps there is a more um you know perhaps there's a more ordinary account of it of the people the, who are signing yeah. up to to join the ukrainian foreign legion right no, but the, uh, there's also just a more popular. I mean, I think that just to take issue with the question as well is that a more a more psychoanalytic interpretation shouldn't be at any rate apolitical. Um, and I think we'll come to this actually when we discuss cynical ideology in in like the second section, the second part of the reading club in in the throughout the northern summer. And there, you know, ideology kind of already comes in through through one's conceptions and psycho, you know, psychological conceptions. So it's not divorced from politics. Um, and, you know, I think Robin is broadly right in drawing our attention to the political instrumental uses of fear, the way that it comes from top down generally, um, and that it is perpetuated through rational interests and through morality through the, the the subject's own way that they justify things to themselves so in, the, in talking about you know the collaboration with the house of un-american activities uh committee and how hollywood actors you know collaborated with that or uh, dubbed in their spouses or whatever um and they justified themselves that to themselves morally and also rationally in terms of their own self-interest which again he takes from eichmann in jerusalem and i think this is why it is still valid that it is this banality not banality of evil but just that it is um ambition um you know social climbing um snobbery sometimes it's these kind of more 
banal um, emotions or dispositions, which are um, which are motive, which are ways that fear gets perpetuated. That it's not necessarily some kind of totalizing sort of idea, nor that it is a product of people's anxieties, which are inbuilt, um, and so therefore, you know, the, where does fear come from? Oh well, it's the fault. It's the fault of the masses because they are. Fear. Now, hang on. Hell, I mean, so I think that's all very good and important and is a better starting point. But I don't think that means we should dismiss the insights of, you know, some of the Frankfurt School, um, Zizek, for that matter, and other kind of psychoanalytic understanding. No one is. Of, no of one the way. is, Alex. No, no, exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm responding to it the question. It sounds like though. you're kind of afraid that we might. But no, no, I'm, I'm not. No, no, I'm answering. I'm very just deliberately answering the question. So I think highlighting the way that that works and that can be perpetuated, I think is an, is an important supplement. And I think we can refer here even to, um, you know, I think that it would, there are rational and analytic understandings. And I think that's what Robin advances. And in fact, we could think about a recent episode with uh, Vivek Chibber as well, where that is foregrounded. But I think, you know, there's been a lot of good work done on ideology, which supplements this, which I think shouldn't be completely dismissed as long as we don't lose the grounding of the kind of. So there's, yeah, there's one. So there's one question, another listener question I wanted to quickly kind of address. But George, no, no, you wanted no. to come in first. Yeah. yeah. No, I do think Alex actually answered this question correctly um, by saying, like, yeah, the environmental movement and particularly extinction rebellion like think about suissance think about exhilaration of fear act now because it's too late that's a pretty good encapsulation of like what yeah. this what this looks like so i think um alex yeah hit the nail on the head well and, and the point that we've made before that everybody now practices emergency politics unfortunately you know fear is an important complement to that you know and to, to kind of try to round out the both the kind of previous readings that we've been doing as well as this one so uh, one final question from a listener was from Nick Johnson, who says he wanted to see something about paranoia, that he thought there was um, a particular kind of inflection of the politics of fear. But the question was the idea that, um, and a more pointed one to Corey Robin, was Robin wants to replace fear with justice. Is that possible under conditions of scarcity? That's a good question. So I think that's right, that Robin kind of sees the answer not in terms of... Um, a different um, model of power or a different kind of model of authority and control, but rather in terms of justice and instead of kind of these humanitarian crusades that liberals should kind of reel in and we should return to the welfare, you know, model of kind of emancipation through the welfare state, redressing inequalities and injustices at home. But is that so is can justice replace fear under conditions of scarcity? I think that's a great point, and I would say no. I mean, this is why I'm skeptical of these, of any kind of political proposal which is premised in some way on a return to the, to the post-war settlement. Um, I think that kind of gets the question upside down, um, and is not you know that's not the right starting point. And I think, as we noted before, Phil, you already said this. I think probably Corey Robin has radicalized somewhat, and his the basis for his argument are much more Marxist, I guess, rather than kind of questions of distributive justice and so on that he he appeals to throughout the book um but the the, the, the just in response to that first kind of question you know or, or uh, prompt for us to talk about paranoia that again will be dealt with in the second part on the on cynical ideology um because we have a reading on um on conspiracy theories which deals with paranoia so there's that will be dealt with definitely and you know this is all thought out guys we we're, we're tying all these themes together so you know it's not just we're, we're, we've got it we've got- <laughs> So just to answer the two points, I guess the the so what the idea would be that paranoia is like anxiety, but 
irrational. I mean, is that, I mean, you could kind of fit it within some of the, the framework that, that Robin talks about, but I think, I guess the reason possibly why there isn't a chapter on paranoia is that maybe there's not a thinker in Robin's um, judgment. I think I'd probably agree of the level um, of the, the four main ones that he picks who writes is particularly about paranoia. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's Richard, I mean, Hofstadter. famously, yeah, yeah. So Richard Hofstadter's book, The Paranoid Style in American Politics, which was a critique of the pop, you know, or it begins as a critique of the populism of the early 19th century. And we've spoken about this many episodes ago with um, a guest, Anton Yeager, who's an uh, academic specialist on populism. And I suppose Corey Robbins' um, refusal to even nod to Hofstadter <laughs> yeah. is a kind of uh, a criticism, an unwillingness to engage, and like George says, kind of effectively um, suggesting that Hofstadter isn't in the same league as the four thinkers that he does look at. I suppose I would say also, I mean, I, you know, it's a very good question from Nick Johnson, and I suppose building on the episode that we had with uh, um, Ross Wolf, I'd say rather than justice you know that the impossibility of replacing fear with justice under conditions of scarcity i'd say justice is itself the ideology of scarcity right because the very idea of kind of um equitable distribution and everybody receiving what they're due that i basic kind of idea of justice is itself a product sent you know ultimately of um limited resources a society which is structured by limited by those um scant resources and so justice isn't an answer to you know it's not as if you can you have justice after scarcity but rather that justice is the way you manage scarcity I, so i think that's right though i think you know it's important to write in in the most developed countries in the world they have overcome scarcity and that the art the scarcity that exists is artificial um, but in in conditions of fast no, growth, in conditions right. in conditions of fast growth, there is there is the possibility of win win, right? So you can have an element of justice, but where those who have a, a lot of power and wealth don't lose, right? Um, and so you can, and that's what you had in the post war period. You had a period of win win. That we're in a situation you're, now you're where you cannot over... have. You cannot have finessing. Win, win. No, I'm not finessing. It's just that now is a win lose situation. There is, and so the no, kind I mean, of I think the. Of, the point about justice, I mean, the point about, you know, that from a viewpoint of a, of material superabundance, the idea of a communist, what a communist, what communism would look like, from that point of view, justice is redundant, right? So I'm simply, I, I wanted, I'm simply, I mean, this is probably taking the point further than Nick Johnson intended it to go, but only making the point that um, it would be a mistake to counterpose to imagine that justice is a solution to scarcity rather yeah. it's a product of scarcity that's no, I, take, I take that point but i think like the whole frame should be rejected the kind of justice abundance this is what could solve the the problem of fear no i i, I would reject that i think it's about you know to return to the point about about authority and you know this idea of control that's that's what that's what i think ultimately um is the only thing that can really combat fear is you know democratic collective control over you know over the the human direction if that's a not yeah, a new I think, phrase i mean i think that that would be right and i guess this that goes to alex's point about the fact that um you have kind of um you have periods of uh great abundance at least relatively to an earlier period but where you still don't have the elimination of necessarily the elimination of the politics of fear 
Um, so I think we should leave it there. Um, so thank you everyone for sending in your questions and uh, they've been uh, tremendously kind of stimulating um, for us and hopefully um, for all of you listening as well. So please do please do get them ready for the next um, the next uh, installment of this series, which Alex is going to talk about now. So over to you, Alex. Yes. So uh, because we were delayed with this one, the next one will be recorded in only two weeks. So do get your questions in. But you know this has been announced already in advance, um, and it'll be the second installment of Fear, um, which uh, which is good. It keeps coming. The Fear. Uh, it's how fear works: the culture of fear in the 21st century by Frank Ferretti. Um, which is a rather different take on the same matter. So it'd be interesting to contrast these two, uh, these two works. Um, again, um, I'll be getting in touch with local reading clubs, see how they're getting on, if they need any help organizing uh, things. And of course, if you are in one of the following cities, please do get in touch. Um, they, there are people there who want to form a group and they're looking for other people. Amsterdam, Kroningen, Leipzig, Milan, Munich, Tallinn, Glasgow, or Edinburgh, uh, Sydney, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, San Francisco, Vancouver, Winnipeg, Washington, D.C. So do get in touch, info at bungacast.com. Um, and uh, I think that's it for now. Uh, thank you very much again also, yeah, for the, for the questions. And uh, let us know what you think. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.